Good morning, King's Cross. Good to be with you. Good to see you and have you this morning. If you're a guest, visitor with us, especially if it's for the first time, just want to welcome you. Thank you. Glad that you've come uh, to worship the Lord with us, whether you are a believer looking for a church, maybe visiting family, or if you're not a Christian uh, and you, you're considering the things of Christ and what God would have to say, whoever you are, however you got here, I want to welcome you. Glad that you're here uh, and pray that the Lord would speak uh, even through his word, even now. God is not interested in second place, nor is he interested in sharing first place. He's worthy of being the supreme allegiance in every aspect of every life who's ever walked the planet. He demands and commands that he must be the main thing in all things or else nothing to you. The Lord Jesus made this clear when he said, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or God and money. God commands he must be your ultimate allegiance. This is what he saved Israel for. It's what he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to accomplish. And it's how he calls Christians to respond to his grace in Christ. This morning we continue our second part of our series in Exodus, Rescue to New Life. And we begin the study of the so-called Ten Commandments, more accurately the Ten Words, coming from the word Decalogue, Greek word uh, deca meaning ten, lagos meaning word, the Ten Words that God delivered to Israel on Mount Sinai. And we're going to study each one, one by one, and walk through what is it that God spoke in this covenant relationship with Israel and how then as the people of God today on this side of the cross of Christ ought we to learn and study and hear from God's Word even in the Ten commandments. Because in these 10 words, Yahweh reveals his will for those who he's rescued to slavery into a new covenant relationship and shows them what, what's it like to be my chosen people, my special people, my, my people set apart for my own purposes, for my glory. This kingdom of priests, this holy nation, these people are to represent God. Likewise, in the gospel, God in Christ, the true and better Israel, who's perfectly upheld the law of God, has rescued those of us who trust in him by faith from the penalty of sin and death. He's rescued us into new life with Christ. Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law for us, dying for us in our place for our law breaking and risen as our Savior King. We're justified by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, when you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, him and the Father send forth the Spirit to indwell the believer and give you a desire to please and obey God. So there is this salvation from slavery to sin and death and this salvation to new life with God. And the Holy Spirit in you that says, God, I want to live for you. I want to please you in this new life. Faith in Christ produces a new heart that wants to please God. We want to fulfill the law of Christ, Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21. We want to do that by loving God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. Saved people want to please God, not to gain salvation, but because he's freely given salvation. Therefore, these Ten Commandments reveal what is pleasing to our gracious God, even with his covenant people, Israel. And we want to obey God. We want to know what is pleasing to him. We want, not to get him to love us, but because he's loved us. And we demonstrate that we actually love God when we obey him. Christ made this clear. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
He taught us in the Great Commission to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he had commanded. Now, we're not interested in legalism that confuses the law and gospel, nor are we interested in antinomianism, which abuses the grace of God with sinful rebellion against God. We are to obey because we are saved, not in order that we might be saved. Because God's kindness in the Gospels crushed the curse of the law for us. We've been set free. And free people live differently than people in bondage. Those who've been set free live a new free life. And contrary to popular belief, freedom isn't do whatever you want to. Freedom is doing what you're designed by God to do. Freedom is obedience to God. You made me in your image. You redeemed me through the blood of Christ. You've set me free to live a particular new life. God, what is that life like? That's our question. This side of the cross, even when we come to study the Ten Commandments. Freedom looks like people whose supreme allegiance is given to God in Christ. So this morning I want to look at uh, the foundation of the law generally and then consider the first commandment. What that first commandment means, how Israel, indeed all of us, have broken it, how it drives us to Christ and how it shapes our new life in Christ, putting him on display as our supreme allegiance. So let's pray one more time and ask for his help and then we'll get into the text. Father God, we come to you through Christ, our perfect law-keeping Savior, our substitutionary Lamb who was crushed for our law-breaking, our resurrected King who saved sinners like us. And we do so by the power of the Spirit, asking, conform us to the image of Christ, even through your preached word right now. I pray for the non-believer in the room. God, would you move in power? Would you convince them of your law? Would you convince them of them breaking your law? And would you convince them of faith in Christ and how Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law in their place that they might live a new life? All of us draw us into more and more conformity to Christ. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I want to look first generally at the law. And this is what I want to think about together as we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. God's commands are absolutely authoritative and gloriously good. God's commands are absolutely authoritative and gloriously good. Look again at verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, if you weren't here last week, we left Israel and indeed all of Mount Sinai itself trembling in the holy presence of Yahweh. God had uniquely come down to speak to his people. His presence was overwhelming them. The the mountain itself was encompassed by smoke, flashing with lightning and crashing and thunder. And now we get to listen in as the almighty, holy God speaks his will for his covenant people. And Yahweh's first words reveal two foundational reasons his people must obey his commands. His absolute authority and his glorious goodness. His absolute authority and his glorious goodness. Again, first, look at his absolute Authority, Like the redeemed of the Lord, those who've been set free and purchased, must live a new life. Why? Because of his absolute authority or because he said so, if you want to simplify it a little bit. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Now, I don't know about some of you, how you parent today or maybe how your parents were when you grew up. But I grew up in a house that often the question why was answered uh, from a child was answered by a father saying, because I said so. And often it might have been kind of colored and decorated with something like, as long as you're under the roof of this house, you'll live by my rules. (laughs) 
It came out something like that. And as a 12-year-old kid, you're like, bet it up. I don't want to be homeless. I guess this is what we're doing. <laughs> but my dad demonstrated, no, no, there's an authority in this house. You're not equal to it. You're under it. I call the shots in this home. And it taught my little heart and mind to understand authority. No, there is one who has an authority, and he speaks with authority, and those who are underneath his authority must obey that authority. The first reason the redeemed of the Lord must live a new life is because of who is speaking. Yahweh, the one who revealed himself, if you remember, to Moses in the burning bush in, in chapter 3. And Moses is like, no, 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 if I go back and do this, I'm going to set Israel free. I'm going to be the Redeemer. Who do I tell him sent me? How do I, how do I, what do I represent? How do I say he's the I am who I am? You tell him I am sent you. Like I'm in a category of my own. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. I have no rivals. I have no equals. I have no authorities. I have nothing to, I am sent you. That's what you tell him. And notice he says this to them. Remember, I am the Lord, your God. I am, I am your Elohim. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. I am the God of all, but uniquely saying I identify with you as my people. So we got to understand he has absolutely, like he has infinitely more authority than my dad ever had in my home. That authority is a derivative authority given to, to God, by God, to parents over children. But it's a derivative authority depending on the authority of another. God depends on nobody else for authority. He needs no permission from anyone else to tell him he's in charge. He says, I am. And so first we have to understand, we must live this new life because I am. The, Yahweh, the Lord, our God, our Elohim said so. When God speaks, he reveals his will. The self-existent, self-sufficient, all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing, beneficent, one true God, creator of all, this is the one speaking to Israel on the mountain as the lightning is flashing and the thunder crashing. And so there's authority in these words, total authority over every human being who exists. In fact, over every, every ounce of creation, angels, demons, those who worship him, those who reject him, he has authority over them all. Over them all. It's important that we highlight this authority because God's word reveals God's will. Notice again, the text tells us God spoke all these words. The Lord Jesus in his ministry taught that out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That what's really going on inside of you eventually comes out of your mouth. Your lips gossip on your heart. Well, friends, the same is true of God. Out of his words represent his desires, his will, his character, his person. He's speaking to reveal himself. So to reject the word of God is to reject God himself. To say, no, 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 I'll take this from the word, not take that from the word, is to say, I will not take the God of that word the one who spoke that word. He didn't leave, and, and, and the glorious goodness of some of this is he didn't leave us guessing. He didn't leave us wondering what are the necessary things to know about him. He revealed himself. He let us know this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what pleases me. These are the very words of God spoken, and later we'll see an Exodus written on the tablet of stone with the very finger of God. So we must obey this word because it is God's word. And he has authority, absolute authority. To reject his word is to reject the God who speaks it. Do you approach the word of God this way? I wonder. I mean, we're only in the second week of January. Maybe some of you are still in your Bible reading plan for the new year. <laughs> I would imagine most of you have already fallen off. Amen. <laughs> but some of you, when you go to whatever that plan is and you go to the text, do you go to the text understanding who spoke the word you're reading? 
Like you don't go wondering, ah, let me see if I think this is right or not. You might go that way. You don't go rightly that way. God reveals himself by speaking. We see this on Sinai. The redeemed of the Lord must live a new life because he said so. He has absolute authority. But also because of his glorious goodness. So notice he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of Israel. The redeemed of the Lord must live a new life, not just because he said so, but because he saved you. He says, I didn't save you from bondage in Egypt to keep you living in bondage. If he saved you, if you're a Christian today, he didn't save you and lead you to this new life for you to keep living in the bondage of your sin. He died, he saved you to set you free to live a new life, not to live the same old life. He's gloriously good and so absolutely authoritative when he says you must live a new life, but gloriously good saying I rescued you for this new life. I'm not telling you to obey me to get me to rescue you. I already rescued you. And now I'm telling you, here's how you live this blessed life that I've rescued you to live. He's still saving sinners from slavery to sin. Still to be his chosen and special people in this broken world. So friends, we've got to understand when he saves us from something, he saves us to something. When a man gets down on the knee and proposes, when I proposed to Rachel, took her to a place where we had both been through great suffering and in a redemptive way got on one knee and said, will you marry me? I was asking her to say no to every other man on the planet. Not for no reason, but to say yes to me. So no, no, I, I'm calling you, say no to all of them to say yes to me. When God calls us to say no other gods, when he redeems Israel, he said, no, 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 I set you free, no other gods but me. I'm calling you to relationship, I'm calling you to new life, I'm giving you this authoritative word, but I'm doing it because I'm good and I know what's best for you and I want special, unique relationship with you. His commands are absolutely authoritative, but also gloriously good and life-giving. So this is a problem in an anti-authoritarian culture. We don't understand authority used rightly is a beautiful gift. And it's meant to cause flourishing for all those underneath it. The psalmist understood it. How do the psalms open up? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. You should obey God's commands because he said so and because he saved you. Because he's in charge and because he's good. Because of his absolute authority and because of his glorious goodness. He's the creator and Lord of all. He made you. He owns you. Obey him because he said so. But also because he redeemed you. He delivered you from slavery to sin and to Satan and to death. His law is good. You should obey him because he saved you. All of this is of grace. He didn't propose to us and ask for our hand in marriage because we deserved it. He asked us to marry him when we didn't deserve it. And then he says, here's how this new covenant relationship's going to go even though you didn't earn your way in. Here's how we're going to live it out together because I'm good, gloriously good. And my covenant with you is good. Now marriage is a good illustration because the first word, the first command demands your unquestioned allegiance in this life. You might say for better or worse in sickness and health until death join you in paradise. That's the covenant command uh, pledge we make to Christ. So secondly, the first word, let's look at this first commandment specifically. The first word, no other gods. Verse 3, again, think lightning flashing, thunder crashing, smoke 
And God's first word delivered to his people, who he's rescued because he's good and he's authoritative. They're trembling, they're speaking. And the first thing he says is, you shall have no other gods before me. So the first question has got to be, what does the first commandment mean? What is the command's authoritative and good prohibition? So he's authoritative, he's good, absolutely authoritative, gloriously good. What is it he's prohibiting us from uh, uh, being able to do or Israel from being able to do in this first commandment? It's very simple. And literally the text reads, no other gods before my face. So I ask you to be my spouse. Don't you bring some other person around? <laughs> We're in covenant relationships. So Calvin talks about this in his, in his response and uh, exposition of the, the Ten Commandments where he's like, no, no, th- you know how offensive it would be if you got married? And then you, a man shows up with another woman talking about, hey, we're going to have her around for a little bit too because I'm going to be married to her too. That's not going good. <laughs> so God says the prohibition is you should have no other gods before my face. No adulteress, uh, adulteresses. No other idols you're going to bow down to. Literally no gods before my face. Now, let's talk about both the authoritative and good no, the good prohibition. And then we'll talk about the authoritative and good yes, what it is he's calling us to do. Simply, he's saying, do not worship, do not trust, do not think or depend on any other God in an ultimate way, only me. Do not give ultimate allegiance to anyone or anything besides the one true God, because he's the only God. He must be the main thing in all things. So in this statement, particularly in Israel, this is a clear rejection of polytheism, that is, many gods. Of pantheism, that is, kind of the earth is God and and we take kind of any and all gods. And it's a declaration of monotheism. There's only one God. Not multiple options. You get to pick which one you want. There's one God. You either worship the one true God or you worship a false God who indeed, as we'll see in just a second, is no God at all. It's also a rebuke of syncretism. That is that I'm going to combine some religious beliefs and practices of some religions with another religion. I'm going to syncretize. I'm going to bring these together. Yahweh's just delivered Israel from polytheistic Egypt. He's taking them into polytheistic Canaan, and he's saying, hey, just so you know, as my people, as my chosen people, as my priest of God uh, among the nations, as the holy people, you cannot be syncing up with other religions. You're not going to go worship these other gods. You must worship me and me alone. Your allegiance cannot be split. God is clear. His people are never to mix religions with the false gods of surrounding peoples. Not only that, again, it's a statement that all the other false gods indeed are false. They do not exist. They are made of mere wood and stone, Deuteronomy 28, 36. And we should know and understand even why he would say this to Israel. Think about the ten plagues. If you were here early last year as we started this study, he's already exposed these false gods in Egypt. Plenty of them. Osiris, when Yahweh turned the Nile to blood, exposed. Not real. No power. Heket, I have no idea if I'm saying these correctly. (laughs) The frog goddess of fertility slayed in the plagues of the frogs. He's already picked fights with Egypt's God and demonstrated they don't exist and they're nothing compared, no rivals, no equals. He's already crushed them, fertility gods, livestock gods, health gods, the crop gods, all of them took L's to Yahweh in the plagues. Even the sun god Ra, who supposedly was embodied in Pharaoh, took a massive cosmic L when the plagues come. And ultimately, when Israel was delivered through the Red Sea, and the Red Sea swallowed up all of God's enemies. Again, he has no rivals. He's making clear all other gods are false. They do not exist. Therefore, you must not worship any other god. He alone is God. Later, Elijah, 
would confront Israel's syncretism by exposing the powerless prophets of Baal, 1 Kings chapter 18. And what, what he says, he asked the question when he's confronting Israel and their syncretism, because clearly they failed. You know, spoiler alert, Israel failed to keep the covenant. <laughs> spoiler alert, you do too. We'll get there in a minute. But when he confronts these false prophets of Baal, he asks Israel, he's confronting Israel first, and he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. Isaiah, when he's going after the folly of deaf and mute idols that man himself makes and then worships, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So just a few things then about explicit breaking of the first commandment that we see even and learn from Israel's history and the rest of Scripture. It is obvious we are breaking, and Israel's breaking, the people of God are breaking the first commandment if they go and participate in magic, fortune tellers, religious pluralism, some from this God, some from that God, mediums that communicate with the dead, every other world religion, other practices are violations of the first commandment. This is made clear, Deuteronomy 18, verse 13, speaking uh, to his people, talking about how they'll represent him, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, these other nations, which you're about to dispossess, listen to the fortune tellers and to the diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So praying to other gods, bowing before other men, even we find in Revelation, uh, when John wants to bow before the angels, the angels are like, oh, don't, no, 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 don't do that. That's reserved for God. We don't bow to men. We don't bow to angels. We don't bow to false gods. We don't bow and listen to, we don't listen to other divine. We don't listen to other, we listen to God because he's the one true God. Anything else is a violation in choosing another God besides the one true God has revealed himself. So the first commandment forbids worship of any other God because the God of Israel is the one true God. That's the absolutely authoritative and gloriously good no. That's the gloriously good prohibition for you. But what's the obvious implication of this authoritative and glorious no? Well, then there's an obviously good and glorious yes. So when he says you shall not do this, why? He's saying that for a particular reason. There was a you shall not so that. What is this so that? What's the good and authoritative? Yes. His covenant people must pledge their ultimate allegiance to him as creator and Lord of all. He's saying the one true God must be your God. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. You are commanded in the first commandment to have relationship with the creator and redeemer of all. God's people are commanded to delight in the infinitely delightful God. It's a command of exclusivity, yes. But in this command, he's saying you must say no to every other false god and idol. But saying no to the false gods and idols are saying no to death and destruction and gods who cannot hear your prayers, gods who cannot provide what you need, gods who cannot protect you from anything. They don't hear you. There's no other god. So he's saying no to them so that you might say yes to the God who will protect you. The God who will provide for you. The God who will be with you. The God who will be near. No other gods but me. I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's good. This is all that would be good for you. Like marriage, it's not a both and open relationship. This is an either or relationship. You can have a fake God or you can have the real one. One of the choose this day whom you will serve. He's making very clear. That you might have the one true God. That you might really know the creator of all. That the creator of all might be your intimate, unique, relational, particular redeemer. He really is authoritatively good. And he really is uh, incredibly glorious and powerful. 
He really is just and he really is gracious. He's worthy of all glory. He's worthy of your absolute, undivided, ultimate allegiance. He's a jealous God who will not share his glory with deaf and mute idols. Because again, deaf and mute idols are powerless and do not answer prayer. And our God wants to answer your prayers. So he says, you will not turn to a false God. He can't answer your prayers. I will. So he's saying no to false gods that you might have intimate relationship with the one true God. His people must worship him in him alone. His people get to worship him in him alone. He's not interested in having any rivals in the hearts and lives of his people. He commands and wants to be your chief affection, your chief allegiance, your chief loyalty. Because he's the one true God. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a redeeming God. You should worship him and him alone. So the first word forbids worship of any other God because the God of Israel is the one true God. That's the authoritative and good no. And the first command, the first word, commands worship of God exclusively. That's the authoritative and good yes. But let's all just admit the problem. We've all broken the first commandment. Everybody in the room. Later in Exodus, Israel also guilty. Moses up on the mountain talking with God. Israel gets impatient. It's like, Aaron, we're, like, we're sick of waiting. Like, just make us an idol that we can bow down and worship. These people, currently, in this moment, are like, ah, amen. We can't even get through, you know, 12 chapters, and we're just going to disobey. And so they say it, and what do we read? Aaron responds by asking for their gold. We read in Exodus 32, 4. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Yahweh. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of slavery. Yahweh speaking with Moses, the mediator on top of the mountain. Israel says, we don't wait for Moses to come back down. Make a golden calf for us. Let's worship it. And they look at the calf and they say, you delivered us from Egypt. A God they made. Rejection of the one true God, a false God. Friends, this is because we are all worshipers. We will give glory to someone or something. We will trust in someone or something. We will hope in someone or something. We will look for ultimate satisfaction in someone or something. Anything we go to for those ultimate things beside God himself or with God himself functions as a false God. It is an idol. See, this is the heart of the matter. Idolatry. Idols are not merely golden calves, but anything your heart exalts alongside of God or in place of God. As that, that's what's going to satisfy me. That's what's going to protect me. That's what's worth living for. That's your God. This is an idol in our hearts, even as uh, the reformers called our idol factories. We can create idols out of all kinds of things. I think this is why the Ten Commandments begin foundationally with no other gods before me and then end with thou shalt not covet. Notice the Ten Commandments begin with the heart, no other gods before me. End with the heart, you shall not covet. So the first sin of the heart is I'm choosing another God. And if you choose another God, you'll break all the rest of the Ten Commandments. And the last commandment is revealing this is what it's like to have a sin in your heart against neighbor. First commandment, sin your heart against God. Last commandment, sin your heart against neighbor. Everything in between, you broke only because you broke the first one. And if you broke the first one, you'll surely break the last one. There's a connection between our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with others. 
If you sin your heart against God by committing idolatry, you will sin against your neighbor by coveting. All eight commandments in between reveal then the external ways you've already sinned in your heart. They reveal how the idolatrous heart exposes itself in an idolatrous life. So what is an idol? How do we know we've committed idolatry? Usually idols are good things that we make God things. So especially if you've been saved, you understand you're seeking to live for God and please him. If you've grown up in the church, you've been around, you understand that you believe, no, there is really one God and I should live for him. Then those kinds of people often, it's not kind of the big flashy, awful bad things that are going to be the idols that tempt you. It's going to be good things that you exalt to the place of God in your heart. Instead of looking to God, trusting in God, relying on God, hoping in God, submitting to God, treasuring God, we put our ultimate trust or hope or submission or value in something alongside him or in his place. A couple evidences that an idol or a good thing, I'm sorry, a, a couple evidences a good thing has become a God thing. First evidence, you do not desire to worship the one true God without it. There's something in your life that should God take it away from you, you would say, I no longer want to worship you. That's your God. Did we not see this with the rich young ruler? A genuine desire to enter eternal life. What should I do? I've kept all the law. Oh, yeah? Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And rich young ruler walks away sad. Thought, sincere, thought he was obeying, and then realized, wait a minute, something in my heart. If God asks for that, mm -mm, I'll choose that over God. So you want evidence of an idol in your heart? Is there something you would leave God for to have? Or is there something if God took away or did not grant to you, you would say you're no longer worthy of following? Functionally, that is your God. What would tempt you to walk away from Jesus? What would tempt you to walk away from him? Might be a good thing that God even has given to you. But if it becomes a God thing, you'd be willing to abandon him for it. It is now an idol. Second evidence and something has become an idol in your heart, you find your identity in relation to it. So you ground your very identity and how you think about yourself and who you are in relation to an idol. Now, we live in a pluralistic society where there are all kinds of competing idols that want to define you. But this first commandment demands God defines you. You are who he says you are. What is right is what's right. What is wrong is what's wrong. And if you listen to a culture with all kinds of false gods telling you define yourself by something else and that comes in conflict with him, but you keep defining yourself by the something else over and against how he defines you, this has become an idol. He defines you, not your sexual desires. He defines you, not your personal experiences. He defines you, not your feelings. He defines you, not your personality or Enneagram type. He defines you, not your horoscope or some historical narrative. God tells you who he is. God tells you who you are. He determines what's right and wrong. Everything else must submit to what he says. When you look to anything else as the foundation of your identity, you have a rival in your heart. That means to kill your relationship with God. The third kind of evidence of idolatry comes with understanding the foundational reality, again, of this entire first commandment. Because, again, if you break this first commandment, or I'm sorry, if you break any other commandment, you've broken this first one. You must first say, God, get off the throne of my heart in order to commit adultery. You must first say, God, get off the throne of my heart to build another idol. 
You must first say, God, get off the throne of my heart to not receive the rest you've given to me. You must first say, God, get off the throne of my heart to not honor your mother and father and authorities he's placed in your life. You must first say, God, get off the throne of my heart in order to, to lie and deceive. You must first say, God, get off the throne of my heart to commit adultery and not be faithful. You must first say, God, not you, I'll be my God. This is foundational for all the rest of them. So if you've broken any of the other commandments, and just know you broke the first one. <laughs> so again, I was just giving you evidence that you've broken the first commandment. If you've broken any of the rest of them, that means you broke the first one first. Therefore, all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. We've all been guilty of making good things into God things. The first commandment really is about our affection. We are commanded to love God unlike we love anything else. No rivals, no equals. But we've all failed to do this. Just like Israel, we've not given 100% of our affection 100% of the time in 100% of the categories in our lives. The first commandment shows us our guilt. It's a tutor that drives us to Christ. How and why does this guilt understanding I've broken this law drive me to Christ? Do you know what the punishment for breaking this law was in the Old Testament? Death. You know what you deserve for having another God? Death. So there ought to be a little bit of a panic button kind of operating. Uh-oh. <laughs> like, I'm guilty. I've broken this one. I need someone to save me. We're in a good place when we start saying, I need someone to save me. <laughs> We're in a good place when we understand and know God is holy, holier than I thought. I am sinful, more sinful than I thought. I've broken his law. I'm in trouble. And we don't say, what do I do? We say, God, can you do something? This is a good place to be. Remember how Israel was chosen. God called Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith. The children of Abraham looked to the promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel even in captivity, set free, redeemed by Yahweh. God keeps his promises even though Israel didn't. God keeps his promises even though we haven't. We all deserve death. None of us have upheld the law. This covenant law is a tour guide pointing us to Christ. This is Paul's whole argument in Galatians chapter 3. That the law is literally like a tour guide showing us. Let me show you your guilt. Let me show you God's holiness, and let me show you the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice and what he does to save guilty sinners. Now, I want to just point out a couple things as, as to try to correct maybe wrong thoughts about particularly the Old Testament, the New Testament, how the covenants relate together. Plenty of Christians disagree on a number of the things I'm talking about, but some of the things I just want to point out clearly that Christians agree on. The Old Covenant wasn't one of graceless law. Like you've seen the grace of Yahweh in saving Israel. They didn't deserve it. He did it by his grace. He chose them by his grace. He set them free by his grace. Now he demands and gives this covenant at Sinai, and they must keep it. There's a conditional aspect to this, but it wasn't a graceless law. They're going to break it, but God kept his promises to Israel. But the new covenant in Christ is also not one of lawless grace. All too often I think Christians are like, oh, shoot, I've been saved by grace through faith. I can do whatever I want now. It's like, you don't know the gospel. Like I had a dude tell me one time, I was having a conversation with him, and he was saying something. I was like, oh, brother, you know, lust is sin, and the way you're talking right now is sin. He's like, oh, shoot, you're right. Ah, but Jesus died for all that. I'm good. No, I don't think you are. Like, if you, if you think grace means you can sin, you don't understand grace. If you think grace sets you free from having to live a new life, you don't understand grace. So again, when we got Old Covenant, we're not talking about graceless law, but in New Covenant, we're not talking about lawless grace. In fact, Jesus made clear, 
Matthew 5, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, in heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And as we've saw in our, or we, or we seen in our study in Matthew, Jesus deepens the law. He's like, y'all are just worried about committing adultery. I say if you look lustfully in your heart, you committed adultery in your heart. You say you're good because you haven't murdered. I say if you're angry at your brother in your heart, you're a murderer in your heart. So he shows us, no, no, no. To understand the first commandment, no other gods. To understand the last commandment, understands that all of this law applies to the heart. And everybody's guilty. And Christ doesn't say, therefore, let me lessen the requirement so you can get in. No, no, no. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. So Christ doesn't lessen the standards. He doesn't lessen the law. He's like, no, no, I'm here to fulfill it, not abrogate it, not get rid of it, but to satisfy it, to fulfill it. He reveals the law is harder to keep, not easier. He doesn't abrogate it. He fulfills it. Israel failed. We've all failed. The commandment proves our guilt. But Jesus, our true and better Israel, the true and better Son of God, perfectly fulfills and upholds the law. Jesus never had any other gods before God's face. He never had any idols, no, no rivals in the heart of Christ in his earthly life. Perfectly obeyed God in every thought, every word, every deed, every emotion, understood his identity in relation to his Father. And yet Peter tells us, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. He died the death we deserve for breaking the first commandment. And he raised to new life, bring us to God by his righteousness that we receive through faith. We have eternal life through faith in Christ. We have Yahweh as our Elohim. The one true God is our God. The law has been upheld by Christ. Our sin debt has been paid by Christ. His righteousness is given to us in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We receive all of this by faith in Christ. Non-Christian friend, you cannot uphold the law. You're guilty. And you may object and say, that's arrogant of you. I say, friend, I'm not standing on my own merit or my own righteousness. I'm saying, like me, you have fallen. Like me, you have fallen short of the standard of God. And I just want you to not turn and look to yourself and think, well, I'll try really hard and maybe I'll make God love me. Because the almighty and relational God can be known even by sinners like us, not through anything you can do, but through everything he's done in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. He is absolutely authoritative and gloriously good. The God of the Bible really is just and he really is merciful. He makes himself known in Christ. Now, Christians, how should this shape our life in Christ? Just to close out. How should understanding this reality shape our life in Christ? Well, by grace, we live free. By putting idolatry to death and pursuing the joy of pleasing God. You got to understand, again, we have new identities. You are who God says you are. Let me tell you who God says you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who you used to be, but you're not that person anymore. You've been set free, washed, cleansed by the blood of Christ. And you've received his righteousness so you can stand before God on judgment day, not with the righteousness of your own, but with the righteousness of the cross. Therefore, 
Live differently. You're free. You don't, you're not earning anything. He's earned it for you. You're free to pursue without the fear of his wrath and judgment. You're free. No longer a slave to sin. He gave you a new nature in Christ. This faith that saves is a faith that grants the transforming power of the Spirit to conform you to the image of Christ by the same gospel grace that saved you. This is always, look at Paul's arguments. By the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, be transformed. <laughs> Paul is always saying, no, no, because this is true and what Christ has done, therefore, here's how you live. Saving grace is transforming grace. So we flee from idolatry by putting it to death. Like, so when the Spirit convicts you of things in your heart that are competing good things becoming God things, what do you do? You put it to death. You surrender it to Christ. You ask for help. You ask for prayer. You ask for encouragement. You ask for accountability. You say, God, re like, replace this false God that does not exist, that does not answer my prayers, that does not heal me, that does not satisfy me, with you, the one true God who does. God is not interested in merely being the top drawer in your dresser. He's the dresser that all the drawers rest in. <laughs> He's not interested in merely being the number one priority in your religious box. He commands he be your number one priority in every box of your life. Pleasing him is the bullseye every time you shoot your shot in your dating life. Your entertainment life ought to be pleasing to him. Your free time ought to be pleasing to him. Your vocation, your money, your Sunday mornings, your Tuesday afternoons, everything you ought to say, I want this to be pleasing to him. In everything in my life, all categories, supreme allegiance to the Lord Jesus, the main thing in all things. And when the Holy Spirit reveals idolatry to us, we kill it. Beloved, flee from idolatry, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And you do so by pursuing the joy of pleasing God. Like we see the free gift of grace in the gospel. And in our joy, we sell all that we have for that treasure. Matthew 13, 44 and 45. No, no, you're the God who satisfies. Sin doesn't satisfy. It feels good for a moment, followed by guilt and shame, and I'm walking around with a heaviness. But no, grace, you set free. I want you. I want your pleasure. I want your joy. Thomas Chalmers, the Puritan, said we fight, we fight with the, uh, the expulsive power of a new affection. God replaced these idolatrous, sinful affections with holy, righteous affections that actually satisfy because you're gloriously good and absolutely authoritative. Instead of worrying how we'll provide for ourselves, we trust God and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We disciple one another, teaching each other how to obey all that he has commanded. We don't walk away from Jesus to our idols, sad with the rich young ruler. We walk with King Jesus to that celestial city full of treasures we could never even begin to imagine. Singing, thou and thou only first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. God is not interested in having any rivals in our hearts. The good news of the gospel is by the Holy Spirit, neither are we. We don't want rivals in our hearts. So to pursue him as our ultimate allegiance is to pursue our greatest joy in him. Authority and mercy. Obey him. Because he said so, and because he saved you for it, because he's absolutely authoritative, and because he's gloriously good, he must be the main thing in all things because of his absolute authority and his glorious goodness in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father.